Welcome friends to Infertility and Me podcast, a safe space created with the silent sufferer in mind. I Am Podcast is dedicated to infertility advocacy and sharing diverse stories to help you feel validated, seen, and heard. I am your host, Monique Farouk, and I am one in eight two. Healing is best when done together. Hey friend, could you please do me the honor of leaving a five-star rating and review in Apple iTunes? This will increase our show's ranking and reach more friends who may be silently suffering with infertility too. We're stronger together, staying connected, getting plugged in. Friday, you guys! Welcome to Infertility of Me Podcast. It's your girl, Monique Farouk, here with another episode for our anonymous Infertility Warrior series. Thank you guys for being here with me. If it's your first time, welcome and strap your boots because we're in for one heck of a ride. Welcome, new friends. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the podcast and giving us a try. If you're not already, follow me on Instagram at Infertility and Me Podcast. You can also email me at at infertilityandme at outlook.com. If you'd like to be featured as an anonymous infertility warrior, you can go to the website infertilityandmepodcast.com. Scroll down on the homepage until you see a picture And it says anonymous infertility warriors and input your information and I will get back to you at my earliest convenience. And if you'd like to share publicly on the podcast, you can go to infertilityandmepodcast.com and click on get in touch and fill out the form. Thank you friends for being here with me and letting me be a part of your day. I hope that your new year is off to a great start. I'm so excited for what 2021 has to offer us, even if it doesn't turn out the way we expect. As far as I'm concerned, if we survive 2020, we can survive anything that's forthcoming. And I hope that you guys are staying sane along your paths to parenthood, whatever direction that is for you. And I'm just so honored to be able to come to you and bring you stories that validate and make you feel less alone along your journey. And I hope that you guys are doing some things for yourself outside of fertility. And I hope that you haven't forgotten about who you are outside of this crazy madness of infertility. And I encourage you to do the things that you did before infertility and build upon that. And just don't let who you are fall to the wayside. I know that it is all consuming and it becomes very obsessive in the infertility world, but I encourage you and I am reminding you today to do something for yourself outside of fertility, hobbies, and just being you and figuring out who you are now and figure out what you need now and connecting with the mental health therapist if you need to. We're going to be having a guest today who was diagnosed with unexplained infertility 
in the early part of 2020, right in the midst of COVID. And her and her partner have been trying to conceive for over two years. And she's been through a couple of IUIs. And she's going to tell us a little bit about where she is today with her journey and how she got to this point. And also we're going to discuss what it's like being Latina and having infertility and the cultural taboos. And she's also a researcher of racial and reproductive justice. And so I think it's going to be a very interesting episode and, and it is my ultimate goal to always give space and room for the silent sufferers out there because I was her. And so I know exactly how that feels. And we'll be back in just a moment with our anonymous infertility warrior of the week. Thank you, friends. I wanted to do this too, you know, and I, I'm like pretty new to the Instagram. I mean, I've been on Instagram for a while, but mm-hmm. I just have started following people aside from you. And I'm like seeing all of this, you know, call for diversity. And so, yeah, yeah you know, I think it's a really it's a it's not an easy transition, you know, from going just having a personal page that you get on, you scroll when yes. you feel like it, you know, and then finding this community on there that's small but so big at the same time, you know. Oh so it's not an easy transition all the time, and so that's why I feel like giving space to people is more important than anything, and just being just being there is enough, you know what I mean? Because oh, it's such a it is a, such a Caucasian space. It really it is. is. It is so hard, girl. It's so hard. It <laughs> is. That was like, no, it totally is. And that was like one of the things that I was so frustrated by like early on, like when I, you know, when I, even when I was trying, mm. even before I got the diagnosis, I was like, you know, trying to, I was watching all those like YouTube videos that are like, oh, how I got pregnant in three months. And it's oh, all gosh. these white women, you know, and it's just, like, even just the TTC community is so white, mm-hmm. and then the infertility community, too. And, and, and not not even the community, just, like, the visible community. Like, the more the people that are, like, featured on these lists, like, right away I started looking for blogs to listen to. Or, right. not blogs, podcasts. Yeah. yeah. And, like, you know, lists that come up first on google are just like all of these Mm -hmm. white women which is fine but it's just there it's it doesn't feel as comfortable (laughs) for me no because you know we have such tumultuous uh experiences no matter where you live at whether it's the u.s or outside of the u.s we have Mm -hmm. such tumultuous relationships with caucasians and it's not and even though we have great relationships with a lot of white people there's still times that we've had some terrible relationships mm-hmm. and terrible experiences. And so you yes. always feel guarded, like how great it must feel to go out into the world and not have to worry about that. Yes. You know what I'm saying? No, exactly. I, yeah. And, and whew, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> For real. Like, we could be here all day. <laughs> we really could. About feeling, going out into world, going out into the world and not having to worry about Am I going to be followed around in a store? Am I going, mm-hmm. being in corporate America, especially someone like yourself who is highly educated and, and, and working in your sector and how white that is and yes, feeling comfortable being seen by a, a white male doctor or uh, 
am I going to be looked down upon by this white lady? Like that mm-hmm. shit is real. I'm sorry if you don't cuss, but no, I, so I do. <laughs> so don't like, apologize. <laughs> it is so real to have that feeling of having to always look over your shoulder. Mm-hmm. And then when we talking about getting the diagnosis of infertility or like yourself who has unexplained infertility, no goddamn reason at all why I'm not getting pregnant. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I know what that feels like because I'm pretty much in the same boat as you are. Mm-hmm. And just not having any explanation for anything. And yeah, so we're going to get into all that. But thank you guys for tuning in. We have our, our fourth episode with our fourth friend for Anonymous Infertility Warriors. You guys know what that's all about. Just giving space to other friends who may not want to be known publicly who they are for work purposes and or personal reasons. And so thank you girls so much for coming on to the podcast and giving voice as a Latina woman, as a highly educated woman in a male dominated field, in a very Caucasian field of work. And then also just being infertile and giving yourself a voice and using um, my, this platform to to speak your truth authentically. So I appreciate you for being here and offering up your story. Well, I appreciate you for, for creating this space for us. So tell me a little bit how you and your partner met. How did you guys meet? Was it love at first sight? Some coercing? No, it was definitely love at first sight. We met a long time ago. I think it was around 2006 2007 so I was in college Mm -hmm. we met at a house party um through kind of mutual friends and yeah it was for sure an immediate attraction it's like it was definitely that kind of this is my person feeling um so about two years later I got into grad school in another state and we couldn't really get the long distance thing to work so we we broke up we separated for several years actually and then a couple years into my grad program I wound up moving back to Chicago to finish writing my dissertation and then in 2014 we we reconnected we had that like same spark mm-hmm. um and just I don't it felt so it felt like you're coming home like it just felt right you know um so we kind of just like picked up where we left off but just like in a as better more mature versions of ourselves I guess um and and it was great like you know the first couple years we like traveled um we both of us are very family oriented very close to our family so we spent a lot of time with families like my my brother my siblings are like my best friends so you know we all hung out all the time we bought our condo um and so in like late 2018 right around the holidays we were sitting on the couch and like you see all these like holiday commercials and like the kids and the families and our close friends were all like starting to have kids as well and so we we were like you know secure in our jobs we had a you know we had our condo we were in like just such a great place Mm -hmm. and so that's when we kind of were like let's do this like let's have a family let's add to our family because we have a dog (laughs) that we love very much and so so that's when we started trying um I wasn't on birth control I hadn't been on birth control for a long time just because I always had really bad 
experiences. Like I tried everything and it just wasn't good for me and my body. Um, but I always had very regular periods. And so, um, so yeah, we started trying. I, you know, I already had a sense because I had regular periods and I was kind of always tracking my periods. I always had, you know, I had a sense of when I should be ovulating. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we were trying for a couple months and, and nothing really happened. And, and so, yeah, then that, that, and that part of mm-hmm. <laughs> everything went downhill. I mean, it was just not not working out <laughs> for us. Yeah, yeah. So then, then did you go to, did you like express any of your concerns with your OBGYN in the midst of all this or did you wait? So, so we decided to start trying like late 2018 and I had already, you know, I had to go in to have my annual in January. So I went in and I told her like, oh, you know, we're going to start trying. And she, you know, she was, you know, excited for me. This is someone that I had seen for a long time. Um, And so she did the kind of baseline tests and she, you know, said everything that everything looked good. Oh, my gosh. I totally I remember when I went in for that consult, too. It was a uh, Valentine's Day. So mm-hmm. she was like, oh, everything looks great. You know, you're under 35. So we, you know, we're going to have you try for a year. If nothing happens, then we'll bring you back. Um, but, you know, I don't think you're going to have a problem. Like, it's Valentine's Day. Go try tonight type of thing. So, so you know, I knew I had to wait for a year. And during that time, you know, being a researcher, like, I can't help myself. I was, yes. like, looking <laughs> things up. You know, I changed my diet. I was like tracking my cervical mucus and like I got the OPK strips, everything. Um, and then, you know, month after month, nothing happened. There were a couple months where my period was late. And again, I've been very regular. So I had a couple of months where I was like, oh, maybe this is it. But it wasn't. Um, and so, you know, after the year, I knew obviously that something was up. Yeah. Um, I, again, because I had done a lot of research, I knew that if I was going to have to do some sort of infertility treatments, I was going to have to go in pretty frequently. And my gynae at the time was pretty far from where I was. So like I went through this whole process of like switching medical groups because I wanted to be somewhere closer, you know, getting a new, the whole insurance thing is just so annoying. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, I don't want to complain. Like I, I'm, I'm so privileged to have like a great insurance plan and, and things like that. So I don't need to complain about that, but I just, I hate that you have to go through all these hoops and anyways, yeah. yes. <laughs> I mean, it just, it delays everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, yeah, like I switched over to, a new medical group that was closer to my house saw I had to get approval from my primary doctor and she was really great you know right away she was like oh you know we'll refer you to the infertility clinic um and and so yeah and then I started that earlier this year so how did you choose your specialist what was that like for you and I'm asking you this question because Mm -hmm. I know how it feels looking for a doctor as 
a brown woman, a black woman in America. Mm-hmm. So how was that for you looking for OBGYN in your area as a Latina woman? Yeah. Well, so again, because I have an, because my insurance plan is everything has to go through my primary doctor. I, mm-hmm. you know, I picked a, the university hospital close to me because, okay. you know, I, I did want to be at a research hospital, I, I had a lot of confidence in, or I still, I still have <laughs> confidence mm-hmm. in this hospital. And then I picked a primary care doctor that was a Latina, you know, that was close to me that worked with the Latino community. Um, and I really love her. She's great. She was like, Oh, you're the same age as my daughter. Like we're going to get you pregnant. <laughs> so she was, she was really quick. You know, she referred me to the infertility clinic that's within that system very quickly. Once I got there, I, you know, I looked to, to add a gynecologist, um, and, you know, looked at the profiles. I wanted, again, a woman of color. Like I had always been seen by a woman, you know, my preference has always been to have a woman be my gynecologist. And so I was able to kind of pick the person that I wanted there. But then when I went to see the RE, I didn't really have a choice. Um, so it was just, this mm-hmm. is the clinic, this is the RE, you know, it is what it is. And it, it's a, you know, white man, not my preference at all, but it's what I got. <laughs> so so that's where I am. I have a lot of feelings about the clinic and the way that they approach patients. But I think that's just in general how I feel about a lot of like medical settings. I, I just yeah, and then and then your your sector of work is is in reproductive yes care and justice, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. I'm very aware, right, <laughs> to say the right, least. Right. So there's things that you see that most of us probably wouldn't look, wouldn't see at first. Maybe, yeah, yeah. I can see how that's, um, yeah, that's kind of shaped and, and and molded your view about clinics mm-hmm. and your experiences with doctors. So, wow. Yeah, I definitely. So, yeah, yeah. So how how was it breaking the news to your partner and to your family about your diagnosis? And where you kind of stood with fertility, because I'm pretty sure it's much like the the black community, you know, like we have these taboos and mm-hmm. we're always viewed as being hyper fertile. Right. Yes. You know, and <laughs> nobody ever thinks that it's going to be an issue until you're the one with the issue in the family. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, again, like my partner, I mean, we had been very open, like I've been telling him, like, I think something's up, you know, um, and he's been super supportive. You know, when I started seeing the RE, he uh, he was just like, yeah, you know, whatever we need to do. He was, I had to push him a little bit to do the semen analysis. I, he, I was like, are you having issues with this? Like, mm-hmm. are you, like, what what's going on here? And he was like, no, no, I just haven't gotten around to it because he had to make his own appointment. Gotcha. I was like, am I going to have to, like, do this for you? Um, but he wound up doing it, and that was fine. And, and so, you know, because of COVID, he wasn't able to come with me. So, you know, all of this is happening during COVID, which just sucks. He hasn't been able to, like, actually come with me to appointments. So that's been hard. Um, yeah. My family, you know, has been supportive. Um, you know, my mom, I told my mom first 
you know, my mom and I are, are pretty close. Uh, she, um, you know, raised us as a single mother. So she's a very like strong willed woman and she Mm -hmm. does not mince words. So when I told her that I got this diagnosis of unexplained infertility, I was of course like so distraught, really upset. Um, and she was just kind of like, Oh, mija, like, no, it is la primera, right? She was just like, you're not the first one to go through this. You're not mm-hmm. the only one going through this. Like, you're going to be fine. You know, tienes que tener fe. Like, just, you know, keep the hope up. I, I'm hopeful for you and you'll be fine. Like, she's mm-hmm. definitely someone who's very, like, she's not one to let you feel sorry for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think at the time I was kind of, like, annoyed Cause I was just like so hurt by what was going on. But I think in hindsight, like I, you know, I under, you know, I think you start understanding your parents the older that you get. Like, I know that's an attitude that she had to take to like survive what she's been through in her life. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think like at first I was kind of like, why don't you like, let me cry and feel sorry for me. But she and she has let me cry since then and you know I talk to her all the time about everything that's happening and you know she's been the first one that I call before and after my IUIs and and so she's she's been supportive in her way you know um I think she so yeah so my mom's been great my I, I wound up also telling my siblings so I have two brothers and a sister told them via Facebook time again because of COVID um I just I knew like going into the actual treatments I was going to need support like I think I had gone through the early stuff on my own and that was really hard well not on my own with my partner but like not really having other people outside of him to talk to um so so I told my my siblings and they were also you know very supportive and my my sister my oldest well my sister's the oldest and then I have two brothers and then it's me um my sister is a nurse and and she's actually a NICU nurse and so she you know she has some friends that um are kind of like in the reproductive space and so she you know hooked me up with someone to talk to um and then, you know, my brothers have been good, although they like mostly just like crack jokes and try to make me laugh. Um, so, so that was, I think, a really great experience. I mean, I knew my family was going to be supportive. We're, again, like very close. So, so that was great. I also shared with my close girlfriends. So I have like a a group of four girls that, you know, we've been friends forever. I mean, we, we went to high school together. So, and we're still very close. Um, so I shared with them and, and they were really the ones that kind of let me cry it out and like gave me space to feel sorry for myself. And, and so that was, I was really happy to have that kind of off my chest. I don't know. It's like the more people you tell, the less of a burden it 
feels like sometimes. So, um, so, so, so yeah, that was a good experience. Um, but it's also hard because again, like a lot of, you know, most of them have had their, their kids and, and were, you know, were having kids while we were trying. Um, and, you know, and, and so, so that was hard. It's been, it's been an interesting experience. Um, but everyone has been supportive. You know, I think people do what they can. Um, but, but it's not, you know, I've, I think I found my greatest or the greatest level of comfort and solace actually in just like listening to these podcasts and listening to other people talk about their experiences. So in, in a lot of ways, I think I needed to hear from people that have gone through it to really not feel alone. Like listening to the podcast, then honestly, <laughs> consultations with my RE. I just, I learned so much from people's experiences, like what questions to ask, uh, so many things. Um, like it's so valuable. And so once, okay, so you, you get your diagnosis, you're going through the emotions, you're sharing with your family and close loved ones now. And so when did your uh, professor brain start kicking in and you started noticing a lot of the things that you've been researching your entire career and how has that changed or how has that changed you as a professor now living through some of these things that you've been teaching and researching? I've necessarily changed in that, you know, one of the first things that I learned when I began studying, like one of my main research interest is the politics of reproduction in the United States. And if you look at the history, you know, like, no way around it. You know that race and class and nationality and disability, right? All of these subjectivities, they shape our experiences of reproduction. My favorite podcast episodes of yours is actually um, your interview with Regina Townsend of Broken Brown Egg. And she, you know, she talks about this long, long history of reproductive and you know color in this country and you know we could you know she talks about the system of slavery we can cite you know the medical experimentation on black and brown bodies and so I can't again like I came into this very aware of all of these struggles this long history of struggle I've, I've spent the last 10 years of my researching life, looking at the history of sterilization abuse in this country. So, you know, my particular research revolves around writing about the experiences of Mexican origin women and men, most of whom were very young, um, who were targeted for sterilization by juvenile court authorities, by nurses, by doctors, right? And so, you know, I've studied the ways that people in these positions of power have used that power to really, like, completely violate the reproductive and the autonomy of already marginalized people, like communities of color, immigrants, disabled people, low-income people, you know, all of these people who are stereotyped and, you know, sexually or morally deviant, economically burdensome, and, and therefore they're unfit you know, and undeserving to be parents, right? And so, you know, 
just the way that that access to parenthood, that right to parenthood has been taken from people and, and continues to be really like, I mean, just a few months ago, we learned that this doctor in Georgia was essentially sterilizing these detained women in unwanted hysterect, unnecessary hysterectomies, right? So it's like, this has been the kind of the starting point for me, even before I really knew that I wanted to have kids. And so, you know, if anything, um, what has changed for me is really that I understand all of this in a much more like visceral way. You know, I remember my first RE appointment. I got up early, like I did my makeup, I did my hair, like I, you know, I, you know, wore a very professional outfit. I lied to my RE and I was like, yeah, me and my partner are engaged. We're going to get married soon because I was so aware of like all the power that he had. Over me and my future, you know, like I didn't want to give him any reason to not want to help me. Like, you know, I need to make a good impression. Like, I need to convince this guy to time and effort in helping me get pregnant, right? You know, like that, that's it's if anything, you know, I, I just feel everything much more personally now. I think I've also just kind of been shifting my analytical lens to slightly different things. Like it really keeps me up at night that there are so many people that don't have access to an RE. Like it's just, it's awful. You know, I think one of the main pillars of the reproductive justice framework is the right to have children. And in a country that has like such a long history of denying that right, I mean, not even just denying it, but literally going into people's bodies to, to prevent them from having children. The fact that so many people don't have access to the medical care that they need to have the families that they want, like that is, it's just, frustrating upsetting infuriating all of that yeah it definitely is and politicians and other people they always talk about well you know getting IVF treatment is a privilege and if you can't afford it then you shouldn't be looking to get it and all these other things like that and I just think that it's so freaking unfair it's so unfair that finances gets in the way of your you, you wanting to have a child and these are not people who are getting pregnant on a whim, you know, and yeah. these are people who are planning out their lives. Or they may like be like someone like you or myself and other, and other friends who have put their career and their education first. Mm-hmm. And they're just getting started a little bit later, you know, and um, unfortunately, everybody just cannot to come up, um, cannot afford to come out of pocket and, and, and shell away, you know, 30 to 100 grand on multiple cycles, you know. I mean, especially, I think now, you know, with COVID and, you know, so many people are going to come out of this pandemic in like a much worse place than they were economically than, than we, than when we started. And it's just, it's so wrong. You know, parenthood should not be a privilege. I think by creating all these barriers to these treatments, that's what we've made it right you know 
given the way our society is structured, who has access to that privilege, right? Do have money, you know, that do have um, the knowledge um, and the preparation to deal with medical professionals and to navigate the system that even me, as someone that has a PhD, finds very difficult and confusing sometimes. Yeah. Oh, man. Hopefully things will change. You know, it's so much work still to be done, and um, but there is power in numbers, and I think that as we continue to have conversations centered around fertility and bringing awareness to it and it being something so important that more conversation is happening, hopefully politicians and other legislators will um, will help us make strides in the right direction and, um, and, and get things changed. So are, where are you guys exactly right now? Are you moving on to IVF? So, again, because of my insurance, which, again, I'm so grateful that I have insurance that covers treatments, um, although I feel, again, that everyone should have access to these treatments. Um, So my insurance has required me to do three less invasive treatments. So we've done three IUIs. Um, I just did my third IUI earlier this month. We'll see. I'll find out actually on Friday if it worked. Uh, if it did not work, then I will, yeah, we'll be moving on to IVF. And that's a whole other thing that I need to figure out. I don't know if I want to stay at my clinic, if I want to find somewhere else to go. I, I don't know. But time just passes. I think mm-hmm. a, <laughs> when you're doing this, it just, feels like such a long waiting game yeah Um, it's all about the waiting and infertility (laughs) it's all about the waiting oh my gosh i got my fingers crossed for you guys um that you you know that the magic happens in in a couple of weeks and and months and stuff for you and so to close out today's conversation if you were standing face to face with infertility what would you say I would say you will not determine my future. You know, I I determine my future. You know, so much of infertility is a loss of control. And, and again, like going back to what I was saying earlier about feeling really comforted and inspired by all of the podcasters, having heard so many diverse experiences and knowing that you know we might go through IVF and like it might not work and we might end up a child-free not by choice couple I think having heard those stories makes me feel confident in the fact that I get to have a joyful future regardless of what happens thank you girls so much for coming on the pod and sharing with us your expertise your wisdom and also your story Um, i know it's not always easy to do that in a public way even if your identity is not being revealed just hearing it out loud sometimes it sounds um it sounds crazy or you you know it's like oh my gosh like this is real you know Um, you know so I, i appreciate you being able to find the strength to do that you know right in the thick of all of your story and your journey to momhood and expanding your family and thank you friends for listening and peace and blessings if you enjoyed today's episode friend 
take a screenshot and let me know on Instagram and tag Infertility and Me Podcast. You can also reach me at infertilityandmepodcast.com with your questions, comments, and feedback.